0: Story. it starts off from about 1999. Um, I got arrested and I got busted with a lot of drugs, marijuana, LSD, and um, the judge, since this was my first felony and I was only 19 years old, he gave me what was called a 74-11 deal, uh, which means that if I can go through a certain probationary period, then without getting in any more trouble, um, that would be it. You know, I'd be off probation and it would be expunged. But about a year and a half into it, I caught a misdemeanor breaking and entering charge and the judge gave me a year in jail. That violated that probation and started me down a whole nother path of probation. I, uh, during that process of probation, every single day, I did not quit smoking weed. I constantly lied to my probation officer. Though I had to go see her twice a month, I always told her that I was gonna be clean. I have looked up all of the research trying to figure out how exactly to pass a drug test. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, Every time that I failed, she either gave me rehab or she sent me to, she put me on tether for seven months. There was another time where she put me in an in-house uh, probation kind of uh, rehabilitation kind of thing. None of those really worked out. I constantly uh, found ways to manipulate her. I would tell her all the things that she wanted to know so that she would give me another chance. And um, fast forward to about 2005, um, I was coming down off a two, two night cocaine binge and a friend of mine that I haven't talked with in a while He invited me to go to a coffee shop. Now, this was on a Saturday. and On a Saturday, normally I'm not going to a coffee shop, I'm going to a bar. I thought it was kind of strange, but I didn't have anything else to do. He came and picked me up. Uh, Him and his girlfriend came and picked me up. And we played cards, drank coffee. It was really an interesting kind of a a Saturday night for me. Well, they invited me to go to church the next day. And when I went to church that next day, it was actually, my friend's girlfriend's birthday and so they threw a surprise birthday party for her and it's strange because I thought that Christians just went to church and then they went home and watched football like it was part of their weekly routine but that wasn't the case because the same people that I saw at the church about a good three quarters of them were over at her house doing a surprise birthday party it was just weird I mean it was like a family they they had a bible study afterwards and I just, I seen a life that I've never experienced. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And that's basically what drew me in. And it wasn't the sermon that I heard that day that caused me to come to the Lord. I really felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, you know what, you secluded me from your life because you wanted friends and you didn't know any Christians. But I'm gonna tell you this, these are gonna be your friends and this is gonna be your family. But when I was delivered home by my friend, he told me, he says, how do you think you become a Christian? Like, what does that mean to you and how do you get to heaven? He says, well, if I'm good, I go to heaven. If I'm bad, I go to hell. I mean, that's what I thought. And that's when he explained to me Ephesians, the scripture in Ephesians that says, by grace through faith, you have been saved, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It gave me something to think about. He says, Malcolm, you can't, you can't do anything good enough to get you into heaven. As I walked up to my door that night, I knew it was on the other side. I knew on my table, I probably had some, you know, roaches in the ashtray, I had empty beer bottles everywhere, but I had no idea what was on the life ahead of me. So as I'm standing at that door, I really felt like, again, I felt like God was saying to me, choose this day who you're gonna serve and I made that decision at 8.30 p.m. I gave my heart to the Lord that day. It was February 27th, 2005, it was 8.30 p.m. I was standing at the door of my apartment and I made a decision for Christ that day because I was intrigued at what the Lord could do in my life. I saw all these other people that were happy and they didn't seem to be paranoid in any way.
1: What's up, Metro? Hey, I'm Pastor Kevin, one of the staff pastors here, and it is awesome to be with you today at both of our locations. Uh, Listen, I have a quick question for you before we jump in. Um, Has anyone here ever experienced bad traffic, like traffic jams, right? Come on, this church, be a little active. Come on, come on, yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, you have a driver's license, you have been in traffic jam. Uh, so over, over the summer, uh, my wife and I are, are we're driving through downtown LA, you know, um, and, and we take an Uber. And, and so we're just like, we're, we're just stuck in traffic. Listen, you, you think I-75 is bad here in Detroit. I'm telling you, LA traffic is ridiculous. It is so bad. It, it's, like, it's like NASCAR, you know, and like the demolition derby in a way. It is absolutely nuts. And, and it's just bumper to bumper. People are yelling and screaming and, and you're all doing it at two miles per hour. Because you think I could get out and walk this, but it's just ridiculous. But going through uh, Los Angeles, uh, I'm looking out the window and, and I see this, this sign. And it says, hey LA, you're not stuck in traffic. You are the traffic. And I thought that's, that's really interesting. Especially considering what series that we are currently in because our series is, is poisonous. And, and really, really, the, the gist behind poisonous is that we all have poison within us. That the problems aren't somewhere else. The problems aren't with someone else. The problem is actually with us. You are the traffic. I am the traffic. We are traffic. We are collectively the problem. We are the traffic the lust, the greed, the anger, and, and, and the poison of all of this. The problem is within us because you're the traffic, I'm the traffic. And so I want to talk today about the deadly poison of compromise. I want to talk about compromise and the baby steps, more or less, that we take when it comes to compromise. Because for, for so many of you, you do not wake up one day and your life is magically upside down. That, that's not actually how life goes. No, we take these little baby steps toward destruction, and, and it's compounded with these tiny, seemingly small decisions that we make day in and day out, every single day. And so I want to talk to you about compromise. But before we really dive in, I really, want, I, re, I really want to invite God's spirit to, to be with us tonight. And so we're a church, so we pray. And, and I, want to, I just want to pray that God would speak to us and, and that you would get it out of your mind that the person next to you needs to hear it and more about that, that you need to, to resonate with this and that God will speak to you through this. So let's pray real quick. Father, we come before you and, and we thank you that we are able to gather here today. I pray that you would just speak to us, that you would humble our hearts, we could examine our own hearts and that distractions would cease and you would speak to us in a very real way because you have gathered us here for a reason. Everyone here today is here for a reason. So Lord, I just ask for you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Everyone said... Amen, amen. Okay, so uh, there is this, this uh, deadly poison called compromise, and there is a great story in the Bible about a guy named David. You may have heard about him, you may not have, um, but here we find him, he is King David. And so David, at this point in his life, it's well after his encounter with Goliath, if that tells you what David we're talking about. It's well after his encounter with Goliath, but this story really shows us the, the deadly compromises and, and the terrible decisions that David makes, just one after another, after another, after another, to the point that, that it really destroys his life in so many ways. And so David, he screwed up in, in such big ways throughout this story, and David finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. So let's check this out. Because our story begins in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Wow, like 2 Samuel. It must have been so good the first time they gave him a second book. I know it's dumb. I'm just trying stuff, y'all. Like, come on. I, I get it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So, so, so go with me for just a second. Go, just, just. David had a call to go in the spring where the kings go. But what does it say? What does it say? It says David sent who? Who? Joab. Joab, you're allowed to talk in church when it's appropriate. You're allowed to talk. He sent Joab. And then, not only did he do that, he sent his servants. But wait for it. He then sent all of Israel. But he stayed home. Really? Really, David? You see, the the funny thing about, about compromise is that you usually don't compromise your convictions when you have an audience. You usually go to a hiding place where you are accountable to nobody when you choose to compromise. And so starts David's baby steps, we'll call it. Just these, just these micro decisions in the wrong direction over and over and over. And so, and so baby step number one, go, go with me here. Baby step number one is being where you're not supposed to be. Now, listen, it wasn't wrong for David to be home in and of itself. Like, just being home, that's, that's not a bad thing. But the reality is, what made it bad is that he was supposed to be somewhere else. For, for instance, I want to I kind of contextualize this a little bit. We have a president who sits in the Oval Office, and he orders uh, uh, the, the military from the Oval Office, or Twitter. I mean, come on. Uh, but, but he does not... I know, right? But, but he does not go out and lead on the front lines, right? Well, at this point in this culture, at this time, it was customary for kings to lead the charge. So galloping horse, you know, the big sword, you know, like the face paint, I imagine, you know? And just like, wah, you know, like, like you're leading the charge because that's how you led back then. But, but listen, David sent Joab. He sent Joab. He sent someone else, and then he sent the servants, and then he sent all of Israel, and David remained home. He stayed home. He's where he's not supposed to be. You may not be doing something, you may not be doing the wrong thing, but you're definitely not doing the right thing. We've, we've kind of been there. He simply wasn't in the right place. And, and years ago, in, in high school, uh, a friend of mine and, and I, we're, we're hanging out, and I knew he wasn't, like, the greatest person in the world. Uh, you know, we're, like, 14 years old, and he, like, smokes two packs a day and, and everything and, and dips and whatnot. It's Kentucky, so. And, and so I knew he wasn't the greatest influence, but I had a pretty strong moral, you know, fiber. And I just was like, no, nah, I'm good, man. Um, but anyway, so, so, so Seth and I are riding a four-wheeler around, and, and you know, it's the hills of Kentucky. And, and so we come up on this house, and, and he pulls over. He, he pulls over, and he's like, hey, I'm going to go see uh, if they're home. i got to grab something. So I was like, okay. And, and this is the early 2000s, and so I didn't have a phone to look at, so I just like watched Seth, because that's what you, believe it or not, guys, that's what you did before cell phones. Uh, and so I'm just watching Seth. So Seth walks up all the way to this house, and he knocks, and he knocks, and he knocks. He waits like 60 seconds, and I'm just kind of like watching him, bored out of my mind, sitting on the four-wheeler. And then all of a sudden, I notice... If this is the door, Seth just kind of keeps looking down, looking down, looking down. And finally he grabs something and he takes off running the other direction and and he's running toward me now. And I'm like, what's he doing? And I'm like, what does he have, a weed? Oh, he has weed. He stole a marijuana plant from that person's front yard. Like, why did he do this? And so instantly I think like, maybe I should just like get on this four-wheeler because I don't want any part of this. And of course, naturally as justice would have it, they came home as he's running toward me with the marijuana plant in his hand. And he's like running toward me. And he's saying, Go, go, go. And I'm just like, no, 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 I'm not. You know? And so and so Seth throws it down and we, and, and we drive away. And you know, I'm like, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong, but I was definitely not where I was supposed to be. And you know, if we're honest, I think so many of us, we know what that's like. We know exactly what that's, what, what that's like because so many of us, we surround ourselves with the wrong people. We surround ourselves with the wrong voices and we listen to them. We listen to the wrong voices because we're not where we should be. And so we settle for relationships that take us far from God. I'm telling you, don't settle. Don't do that. You know your worst decisions come from hiding. Your worst decisions come from being alone. Your worst decisions happen when there's no one else around, when you're not where you're supposed to be. This is why church matters. This is why a place like this matters, you coming here. This matters where you're surrounded by people who want what's best for you. Because God wants you here with everyone, not somewhere else by yourself or with the wrong people settling for the wrong friends. So David is alone. But check out what he does. Check this out, because, because David does, what he does next is just another huge compromise. Um, baby step number two, doing what you're not supposed to be doing. Um, anyone, anyone in here, uh, you ever know, like, you've been in that position, you're doing something you shouldn't have been, you made a decision you shouldn't have made, or worse, you know what you're about to do is wrong and you just, ah, screw it, and you do it anyway. And, and like, like, we've been there, right? I'm the only one. Okay, okay, that's fine. Thank you, thank you. We, we, we've been there. So, so here's, the, here's, what I'm want, here's what I wanna get at. David sent Joab and his army and all of Israel to do something that God gave him to do because David didn't wanna do it. Like, that's ridiculous. It, it's, it's true of us because it's, it's true of us. The moment you open your computer and you know you're going somewhere that you have no business Going down. The moment that you think I can just, I, I can steal just a few extra dollars, make some extra money in my pocket. Or, or you lie to get ahead so it makes someone else look bad. You compromise. You compromise. And you know this is not what you should be doing. Compromise. Listen, it's a baby step in the wrong direction Again and again and again. It starts small, though. It starts small. And so, and, and, so, and so the devil tells you it's not a big deal. It's just a small thing. It's just a small thing. No one else is around. Not sure if you know this or not, but, but God has a very distinct call for you, for you, for your life. But if you're not careful, and if you are not intentional about the call that God has for you, you will compromise it. You'll even expect someone else to do it like David does. But God didn't call someone else. He called you to be great. He called you to do what you're supposed to do because he gave you those gifts. He gave you those abilities. He gave you those passions. He gave you the passion to do this, not someone else. Are you awake with me this morning? Evening, whatever. But you're with me. Maybe, just maybe, it's because you know, when you think of this calling from God, maybe it's just intimidating. Maybe it's, it's just too much for you to think about. Maybe you just think, yeah, someone else should do it because I'm j- it's too large for me. Listen to me, if the calling on your life doesn't intimidate you, it's probably insulting to God. God expects big things out of you. He's a big God, he created you for big things. You're made for big things, so don't waste it, don't compromise it, don't give it away to someone else. And listen, I get it. It's, it is so intimidating to step out and try something new because what if you look dumb? What if you're not an instant 10 at it? What if you're not instantly great at what you want to try? What if you fail? What if people are around? Listen, I'm there with you. I'm with you. I'm telling you right now. I get, I get anxious over nothing. I I do. I know the Bible says, be anxious about nothing, and you're sitting there thinking some pastor you are. Listen, I'm a human. I'm allowed to be human. I get anxious sometimes over silly things. I get intimidated easily over silly things. I lose my confidence even though I shouldn't, and I know what you're thinking. Like, Pastor Kevin, what are you talking about? You wear your confidence as well as you wear those skinny jeans. Thank you. (laughs) Number one, I'm married. But number two... It, it is true, though. Like, 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 I do lose my confidence so easily. It's so stupid. Because, because instead of looking at the big God that gave me the call, I look at the small problems that I have in my life. It's so stupid. Moving up to Michigan a few months ago to be a pastor, you want to talk about intimidating. I mean, I think of all the other pastors that have been here and, and have taken this stage. And it's scary and it's intimidating. But listen, I'm telling you, I know the call God gave me. And so I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have tunnel vision and I'm gonna look at God and see what he is calling me to do next. I will put distractions aside and I will focus on what God is doing in my life. I refuse to be intimidated, even though I feel like a failure sometimes. Even though I think Metro should have gotten someone else, even though these ridiculous things come to mind. But listen, I choose to believe in God more than my inabilities. I choose to believe in God more than my insecurities and more than my weaknesses. But David sent Joab to do the job that God called David to do. And so, what happens to David? What happens to David? Well, verse two, verse two, it says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman, that was very beautiful. The Bible's not boring. That's it's interesting. David is not where, listen to me. David is not where he's supposed to be. David is doing what he's not supposed to be doing and now he finds himself and baby step number three, just the small compromise, number three, looking where you're not supposed to be looking because compromise is a single baby step in the wrong direction. So David knew back then, in case you didn't know, David did know that people went to their roofs to bathe. He knew what time of day it was. I mean, it says he was being lazy. He got up off the couch. He wasn't being active in his faith. And that's, that's what happens when sin gets you. It creeps in out of nowhere, you feel like. But listen, if you're not active in your faith, then that makes sense. Of course it would just happen upon you. You're bored out of your mind. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not busy, it's not good. It's not wrong to hang out on your roof, just like it's not wrong to just open your computer. But you know, what all, you know what it all starts with? Click. Click. Click, oh, click. That's what it starts with, just, just, just small things, small steps, small clicks over time, just becoming more and more and more of who you are, leaving you feeling emptier, and thirstier. It's one step in the wrong direction over and over and over and over. So David knew there was this fine looking woman named Bathsheba. He knew where to look and what she would be doing at eight o'clock that evening. Because what your eyes look at, your heart will eventually begin to desire. The things that, that you that you see, the things that you look at, the things that, that you just want to stare at, and, and you want, and you just like, your heart will begin to want it too. I got two little boys, and, and they're three and two, so yes, we are tired a lot. And, and, and so my wife is an incredible uh, cook, and she bakes like these incredible desserts, and so my boys have figured that out really quickly. So, so she'll like, you know bake dozen cookies and set them on the table. And, and so she sets them right here, you know, like all of a sudden you see little eyes looking over the table like this, you know? And so they're, they're just staring at the cookies. And so she'll say like, boys, they're hot, but how, how long can you really resist, right? You can kind of picture the little kid, you know, like how long can they really resist? And so maybe we're bad parents. We just tell them, we just warn them once and then whatever happens, happens because they need to learn because if you reach too soon, you get what? burned. You get burned. And so what your eyes look at, your heart begins to desire. You can't resist that long. Just click, click, click over and over and over. So David sees with his eyes and he desires her. But this isn't, just so you know, this isn't Bathsheba's problem. This is David's problem. And, and this just takes him on this downward spiral and ruins his life. It costs him everything. It even compromises his relationship with God. And so I want you to hear the rest of Malcolm's story. Go ahead.
0: Fast forward to the fact that I'm still on probation. I still have to go see my probation officer. And... I just got done smoking a lot of weed and doing a lot of cocaine. So I knew that if I went and saw my probation officer, I was gonna fail this drug test. Now mind you, I just became a Christian. And the thing that I really felt like the Holy Spirit really wanted to change in my life first was the manipulation in my life. I had to go see my probation officer and I was very nervous. I was talking to the youth group that I was involved with There was about, I don't know, maybe 10 people my age in a youth group, and the pastor of my church was leading it up, and I asked him to pray for me because I was so scared. I was conflicted. I didn't know what I was gonna do. I knew that if I went and saw my probation officer, I was gonna fail, and uh, the pastor told me that if I truly wanna live a life of a Christian, then I need to get rid of the lying. I need to be honest, and I need to own up for the mistakes that I do and I need to trust God no matter what. Now that was really hard considering that my whole life was revolved around drugs and uh, there was a lot of fear. You know, I'd love to say that everything was okay, that I went in there without conflict and faced my probation officer and, you know, there was no fear, but that's not the case. That, that morning, I actually went to a smoke shop and I bought some stuff called Ready Clean that was supposed to help me pass a drug test. And while I was taking a shower, I was just, I really felt like God was telling me, do you really trust me? And it was weird because I really feel as though, like this was a weird feeling for me because I'm a new believer. I never really had that conviction about to tell a lie. And so I I just told God that day, I says, you know what, no, I do trust you. No matter what it takes, I'm gonna trust you. So I went and saw my probation officer with this confidence that the Lord is with me. Um, And she asked me, are you gonna be clean today? She asked me that question every week and I would always lie to her and say, of course I'm gonna be clean. I didn't know. But this time I told her the truth. And I says, you know, I'm not sure if I'm gonna pass. She said, so what do you mean you're not sure if you're gonna pass? I said, well, um, to be honest with you, two weeks ago, I was high on drugs. I've always been high. I've always lied to you and now I've given my heart to the Lord and I don't know what this is gonna turn out to be. But I trust that no matter what happens in my life, I'm okay in God's hands. I have to trust and I have to turn my life over to the Lord. And the first aspect is I have to tell the truth. And she said, you know what? I'm really happy that you told me that, but that doesn't change the fact that if you fail your drug test, I have to give you the maximum sentence. I've given you every other option that I can, but I was still confident. I went down, I took my instant drug test. And when the guy told me that I had failed, my heart dropped. I was thinking to myself, well, this has to be a lie. There's no way that I failed this. God told me to trust him. I know that he told me to trust him. So I, I begged the guy and he gave me a second drug test. That, uh, <laughs> that failed as well. I had some decisions to make at that time. The probation officer gave me one week to, uh, to tie up all my affairs. She said, Malcolm, normally I would just put you in a holding cell and you would wait to be sentenced until we send your uh, urine to get properly tested. But she said, since you told me the truth, I really believe that you know, maybe something's different. Maybe this Jesus thing that you're talking about is real. So she gave me an opportunity to go throughout the rest of the week and basically prepare to go to prison. She was going to have to max me out. I was facing 4 to 11 years in prison, and I was terrified. That entire week, I had so many different temptations. All the people that I had been talking to, especially my brother, who was saying, hey, you know, this Jesus thing isn't real, that was their opportunity to laugh at me. And uh, so many people were asking me to party and to just have a great time and enjoy it while it lasts because you know, I basically sacrificed my future. I'm going to prison for who knows how long. But the Holy Spirit gave me strength that week. I was very weak. I was scared. I was nervous. But every time I was offered to do drugs, I really felt comforted. I felt comforted that, that I'm doing something for the Lord. You know, I was grateful for the salvation that I received. And that was enough for me. And so I came to the point in my life where I was deciding if God wants to send me to prison, I don't know why he wants to send me to prison, but I realized that I did it to myself. And I wanted to start fresh. I wanted this life in Christ, and so I did. I, you know, I I stayed clean no matter all the opportunities that I had. And when I went to see my probation officer that following Tuesday, um, I sat down in her office and I told her, I says, I know that you've given me all these opportunities and you wanted to see me change. I just want you to know that I really appreciate all the chances you've given me, but I'm at peace with what you have to do now. So don't feel bad about sending me to prison. She said, are you done with your, you know, your rant? I said, yeah, I'm done. She said, okay, well, I have something that I need to share with you. She said, we sent your out uh, to get tested and it came back negative. The two instant drug tests that you took were faulty drug tests. And you was actually clean. So you mean to tell me that entire week that you was, you know, tempted by your comfort zone? You because know, mind you, I've been doing drugs since I was 13 years old. Um, <laughs> she said, "You mean to tell me that you was able to resist even in that extreme pressure?" And I explained to her. I says, "I told you, I gave my heart to the Lord. I didn't do it on my own strength." Every time I wanted to fall back into that lifestyle, I felt conviction. I couldn't enjoy it. And yes, I stayed strong. I did not do what my flesh wanted me to do. And uh, she said, so if you go down and you take an instant drug test right now, you should be clean. I said, barring a faulty drug test again, yeah, I'll be clean, because I haven't done any drugs. I went down, took the drug test, and uh, came back clean. When I went and saw my probation officer, mind you, I was ready to go to prison. My brother was sitting out in the car waiting to see me walk off in handcuffs. And that entire week, he was mocking me. He didn't think that this thing was real. And he was waiting to see me come out in handcuffs. But when I went to see my probation officer and I was clean, she told me, Malcolm, you no longer have to come and see me. I truly believe that God has done something in your life. And all I want you to do is to call me if anything ever changes in your situation. You're free to go. Pay your fines and I will release you off probation." When I went outside that day to, you know, go get back into my car, which I thought I was gonna, you know, be walked out in handcuffs, my brother came to me and he said, "'I thought that you were gonna be in handcuffs.'" I just raised my hands and I'm like, I'm free. My brother started crying and he came to me and he says, "'Malcolm, this Jesus thing has to be real.'" it is. My heart's changed, my life's changed. I was ready to go to prison and now I'm not. Now, I don't know if that was a miracle that God chose to do, or if it really was just a faulty drug test. But I guarantee you one thing, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that was real. And I made a choice. That choice was to either squander away the rest of that week of freedom that I had, or to live true to what I committed to to God. I stay true to what God had put into my heart, and here I am today. It's been a gradual, step by step by step, my life has been improving. I'm now married, I have two kids, I'm a part of a wonderful family and a wonderful church, God has given me the opportunity to teach um, young people and teach teenagers, um, in a way, from a perspective of somebody who's been through it. And because of that, I'm able to give God glory through my life.
1: I just, I just love the fact he said, you know, step by step by step. He's found a new life. Because listen, it's, it's all about these small, seemingly small steps that will absolutely change your life, that will absolutely wreck your life. Because what your eyes look at, your heart begins to desire, and see how easy it is to look in the wrong places, how easy it is to give your attention to things that actually don't matter. We look in the wrong places over and over and over, and so David is also looking in the wrong place. Uh, Bill Hybels once put it pretty bluntly. He said, there's something wrong with your character if opportunity controls your loyalty, so David sees Bathsheba and he calls for her and she comes to him and they sleep together and it's, it's so much more than just a seemingly small one night stand. It's so much more than that because David gets her pregnant while her husband is away because he's an honorable uh, uh, person in the military. He's an honorable soldier fighting for David. So David invites her husband Uriah full of great names so 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 Uriah comes back and David asks him how things are going and says now now go be with your wife go go have a night with your wife like enjoy yourself you've been you've been fighting hard and Uriah is too honorable he sleeps on the front porch and so David thinks he can he can try again and so David does it again except this time he gets Uriah drunk and says surely this time it'll work Uriah even though he is drunk still has more honor than David and he sleeps on the porch again, refusing to go be with his wife because he believes he should be suffering as much as his men on the lines of battle are. So, so here is the cost of sin, here is the cost of compromise. David sunk to committing cold-blooded murder. Verse 15 says, that uh, uh, right before this, David uh, actually gives a letter to Uriah and says, hey, go give this to Joab. Verse 15, it says, and in the letter, David wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down, that he will die. And so this, this, this baby step four is that you become what you're not supposed to become. You're not what God called you to be. You're not who God says you are. And so David sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front lines and David does the unthinkable. He does the unthinkable. And so David, he just, he just, he just continues these baby steps, just these small steps toward a greater destruction. It just starts so small. But slowly, you and I do the same thing. We become what we never thought we would become. You do what you never thought you would ever do. You become a liar. You become angry all the time. You got married and it was until death do us part until they didn't quite meet your expectations. And now your family's broken and your life is just a mess because, listen, compromise begins so slowly and so small. We compromise at work just a little at a time. We take something that isn't ours. Well, they don't pay me enough to be here. I can take this. That's wrong. We cheat on our timesheet. It's just five minutes and everyone does it. That's wrong. That's a compromise. Don't, don't do that. Don't compromise. It's, it's, the little, it's the little steps. It's the small compromises that we will end up doing the unthinkable that lead us to destruction. We compromise our marriages just a little at a time. So no, maybe you're sitting here right now. And no, we haven't been on a date in over a month. Or really this year. It's early yet. Oh, but we spent 25 minutes at the doctor's office together yesterday. Does that count as a date? No. No, it doesn't. But it's small things like that. You start to lose the spark. When you lose the spark, you lose the flame. When you lose the flame, you lose interest. When you lose interest, you know what happens next. You do the unthinkable. We compromise our relationship to our kids all the time. Listen, my oldest boy, Locke, it's a weird name. I don't care what you think. But my oldest boy, he has so much passion. He has so much energy. He's so zealous for life. He loves running around. He just loves being a three-year-old. But he, he, he has this curiosity. He has this sense that he wants to explore. And naturally, it leads him into all kinds of trouble. And so, you know, he gets in trouble. But listen, I compromise my relationship to my son, if I just think it's easier just to yell at him. What are you doing? Stop doing that, How? That's, that's not okay, that's not right. Because if all I do is respond by yelling at him and telling him what he's doing wrong, he will lose all trust for me. We won't have a good relationship, he'll be afraid of his dad. But you know what, if I choose not to compromise and and I choose actually to invest in him and instead of all the energy going everywhere and being chaotic, if instead as his dad, I kind of guide his energy and I help him become maybe even a better preacher than his own daddy is today, then maybe I can turn him into something else. Maybe I can be something for him that I never got. Maybe if I choose to do the hard work, instead of being angry, instead of just yelling at him, Maybe, maybe there's some influence I can have in his life. Because I don't want to teach him to respond with anger instead of compassion. I don't want to teach him to respond with frustration instead of grace, with annoyance instead of love. No, my son doesn't need a dictator, he needs a dad. That's what our kids need. Even if you don't have biological kids, you're not a parent, you have influence. Don't lose your temper. Take a deep breath. Seize that moment. Otherwise we will do the unthinkable. We will, we will break relationships. And they will never be the same. And that leads to this last baby step. We attempt to excuse it. We make excuses. How many of you in the room, maybe mid-argument, ever realized you're wrong? <laughs> uh, I hear laughter. You ever realize you're wrong? You know, someone Googled it to prove you wrong, or I don't know, further evidence suggests you are wrong, and, and, but, but you're prideful. And you're like, no. And so you make excuses, you know, like, well, no, this is why it is. I mean, I kind of picture David almost doing the same thing. I picture him saying, you know, if, if Bathsheba wasn't so pretty, you know, if, if she wasn't on her roof, naked, bathing, you know, if Uriah was home ever, You you get what I'm saying? We excuse our behavior. We do this all the time, David is doing it. David wants to believe he isn't guilty and Uriah is just a casualty of war. David is just making excuses because he didn't physically with his own hands murder Uriah, oh no, it's just war. But we do the same thing. We do the same thing all the time at work in our marriage with siblings. We do this stuff all the time. And so actually it was just like this week, uh, again, my oldest son couldn't reach something, you know, but, but I knew he could, he just wasn't trying that hard because, you know, kids do that, they're lazy. And so he's just kind of like, I can't reach it, I can't reach it. Um, but he's getting more and more frustrated. And then I'm getting more frustrated that, that he's frustrated for no reason to be frustrated. And so there's just a lot of frustration in our house right now. And so like, and so like, he's just like, kind of like having, and he's like, I can't do it, dad, I can't do it. So I say, boy, your last name is Ken herberry not can't herberry you can do it i'm not raising a kid that says i can't do something i gave you your name i know what you can do because yes you can and we have the same mentality with excuse making all the time i can't do it but we're not even trying in fact i would dare say we're not even praying about it we're not really trying we have to stop with the excuse making because because eventually Truth always comes out. You will always be found out. It always comes out. And so in this case, God had to take a drastic measure toward David. And so God sends his prophet named Nathan. And so Nathan approaches David. And so Nathan tells the story. He says, uh, this is Nathan talking to David, King David. Nathan says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one small lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his food and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse five, then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan says, you are that man, David. You are that man. That's you. You're wrong. That's not okay what you did. So David is confronted. So David, you can almost imagine, is at a loss for words. Listen, the truth hurts, but your integrity matters most. And listen, I get it. I'm a 28-year-old. I'm a I don't have a lot of wisdom. I'm, I'm not like incredibly smart or anything like that, but I do know a few things. And I know that God always has a way of checking us. God always has a way of holding us accountable. Listen, don't dismiss, listen to me, do not dismiss the Nathans in your life. They represent tough love, they represent needed love. How quick are you to classify someone as a hater just because they tell you something you're not comfortable with? God sends people into our lives to teach us tough lessons. But we have to be honest. And this is the end of Malcolm's video on honesty
0: honesty is a change of life for me my entire life all the way from being a kid that's the way that I made friends was through manipulation I'm not a very big guy Um, everyone in my family is all like athletes and you know muscular and I'm just a skinny guy that was really good at doing homework so the way that I made friends was through manipulation That was just a skill of mine throughout my entire life. That's what helped me make it through my teenage years all the way up to 25. But once I became a Christian, it was like, this, it it switched for me. You know, that was who I was. That's how I made it in life was through dishonesty. Um, But when when God gave me a new heart, um, that's, honesty is, honesty is a fabric of who I am. Um, honesty is a gift that I give back to the Lord. Every day I make a choice. Sometimes I make the bad choices. I'm not perfect, I know that. But when I choose to be honest, opposed to go the easy route of lying, in a sense, that's a way that I consciously honor God with my life. Um, even every day on my job, I do, I do construction work. It's very easy for me to do shoddy work. I have uh, one of my partners that I was working with, I was installing the tub surround and it was a vinyl tub surround. I put some drywall behind it and there was a gap at the bottom that was gonna get covered by vinyl. Now I knew that the proper thing to do was to fill it with drywall mud. My partner thought I was crazy for filling it with drywall mud because he said no one will ever know. And I told him I got the opportunity to share Christ through my job. And I says, you know what? Nobody would ever know, but God sees it. Everything that I do, God sees, and everything that you do, God sees. And I choose to honor him with my integrity because that's all that I have. That's the one thing that I can offer God as a gift because that's the the dishonesty and the manipulation. That's what he removed from me. Those are my dirty rags. So honesty to me is a choice. It's not an easy choice. It's a really hard choice to be honest, but it's a rewarding choice because in that, you become more of a reflection of the character of God.
1: Wow. Um, Your integrity matters to God, and he will get your attention in all kinds of ways because I think it's time that we deal with these small compromises. I think it's time that, that we do something about it and that we choose to be honest and people of integrity. Because truth be told, you have to to hate your compromise. The compromises you make, you have to grow to hate them. Recently heard my wife, I didn't get permission to tell the story, so we'll see what happens. Recently, I heard my wife say, you know, I just, I hate being late. Now, truth be told, I've never heard her say, I love being early, but that's beside the point. Because the thought of I, I hate being late is powerful so go with me here hatred for something can be used to make us better but listen listen un- until you hate being late more than you love hitting snooze don't expect your life to change yeah. are, are, are you hearing me until you hate compromising more than the sin or the struggle itself don't expect your life to change no It's time to change something up. It's time to to stop taking these little steps toward destruction time and time again and then realize how far away you actually are. Because God is a good God and he's pursuing you right now and and, and he is very much like a dad watching his newborn, watching his baby take their first steps and saying, come on, come on, come back. Come on, come on, come back to me because I think God is telling you right now, come back, come on, come on. You're gonna fall, but is, is God gonna be angry? No, get back up, come on, come on, come on. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Come on, take a step forward, come on, come on. Your, 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 your very presence here tonight is a step toward God because you need this, because we need this. You are here right now because God wants you here and he's saying, come on, next step. Let's go. Come on. Come on. That's a great first step. Let's take another one. What are your next steps? What are your next steps going to be with God?